Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, we're in chapter 42 this morning. In the Pew Bible in front of you, that would be page 602. Or in just a second week in a in about a six or seven week series through a key section in this book of Isaiah, which we've titled The Gospel According to Isaiah. And just before our passage, Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, Isaiah cries out, Behold, look at these idols, they are nothing. Verses later, he cries out, Behold, look at these idols, they are Delusions, idols in that day, little statues, physical representations of the invisible gods, a way of manipulating the gods and controlling the world. I doubt you have a little statue at home, but we have plenty of idols in our hearts, substitute gods, God as we imagine him in our own image. Our God is not okay with that. That's why he sent Jesus. And he speaks to this matter in our passage this morning. He has something to say about idolatry. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Now, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, and that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let me address two things before we get into our text. First, I wish that I could watch Lord of the Rings for the first time again. It was in college, in the, in the movie theater, and the first one had come out, and, and then I had to wait, and then the second one, and then I had to wait, and then the third one, and then I thought, I've used them up. Uh, so, you know, you get the, the series, and you watch it again, and early in our marriage, we had this way of, of we watched it once a year. It's been a long time. 
about, we, even a couple years ago, I got for Christy the gift of the, the 4K version. Uh, we haven't watched it yet. So we'll get, it, we'll, get her, we'll get around to it when all the kids are married off and gone. <laughs> it takes a lot of time to do that right. You know what I mean? I wish that I could go back and watch it again for the first time when I didn't know what was, what was coming next. Well, many of you would be familiar with Isaiah chapter 53. And if you're not uh, being around church long enough, that's, that's a passage in the Bible that you, you, you end up you recognizing. Um, in Isaiah 53, where the Lord says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. By his wounds, we have been healed. And on and on, there are these familiar lines that teach us about the meaning of the cross and what Jesus was doing on the cross. In fact, it is this passage, that chapter, Isaiah 53, that is the most clear and thorough and rich explanation of what's happening on the cross that we have in our whole Bible. That we have verses and other ways that it is expounded. But there in our Old Testament, many hundreds of years before it happened, is the straightforward explanation of what Christ was doing there and what the Lord was doing in him. Uh, we're in a series uh, called the, the, the Gospel According to Isaiah, it, focusing on a set of what are often called servant songs. There are four stretches of poetry, four blocks of poetry, uh, in which a, a theme of God's servant is developed. Uh, don't think merely... Uh, servants like maybe you would use it out and about or in daily life. This is a, a technical term, a, a, a title for, for, as we'll see, a nation, a person. And it's at the heart of what, this is, this is one serving God's purposes of salvation to the ends of the earth. This is the one on whom all of God's purposes are focused, through whom all of God's purposes will come about and Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That language comes from Isaiah 53. Well, Isaiah 53 is the fourth of these four servant songs. And we don't honor the Bible by treating Isaiah 53 like it just dropped out of heaven in isolation. Um, it comes to us in the context of these four servant songs, which come into us in the context of the book of Isaiah. So our work as a church, and my work with you over these next weeks, is to understand what was happening on the cross and in the resurrection. What God's doing in his church now by way of these four songs. Isaiah 53 which speaks of the, the purpose of the Lord to crush his son in order that we might be forgiven and given the righteousness of the Lord, comes to us in the context of these four servant songs which we're exploring. So I would ask you this morning to try to suspend your knowledge of where some of this goes. Uh, even your knowledge of Isaiah 53 for now, your knowledge of the cross for now. And we'll, we'll, we'll reveal some connections as we, we go 
on. So that's the first thing, a word about Isaiah 53. Now a word about poetry. So we're in sections of scripture that are poetic. Um, So use your imagination. Poetry uh, has a certain way of using words. It's dominated by, overwhelmed with images. So let the poetry work on your mind. Get get your imagination going this morning. Uh, God in his kindness saw fit to make humans to create things like poems. Uh, Art form, we could say. It's a beautiful way of carrying words that work on our imagination. We are not AI bots who just take inputs and then have outputs. We're whole people, and, and God is speaking to our hearts with a poem this morning, not just a line of truth, but a, a vehicle, a special vehicle fitted to carry that truth because that truth is beautiful and poetry is beautiful. So we're grateful for artists who create things like poems. And we consider that our God is a very great artist and he has employed this poem for our good. Of course, the Bible and scripture is not a platform or a vehicle for poetry, as if that's the main thing. No, but poetry is a fitting vehicle for God's revelation, which is powerful in itself to save. Okay, so our imaginations are on. Make sure you've, you've thrown, that, thrown that switch. Well, God is not okay with idolatry. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, they are as nothing. Behold, they are delusions. And now behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. He is not just something, but everything for us. Four servant songs that help us understand how we move from that old city in ruins, that rebellious, ruinous city, to that new creation city in righteousness. Do you remember how Isaiah began his book from last week with a portrait of a city in ruins and then a city in righteousness, the same city transformed, a city that was godless having turned from the Lord into idols, and then a city that was founded in God that is united to him and reflects his glory and his beauty and his joy. Well, this is the first of four servant songs that help get us from that city to this one. Four servant songs, this the first, with its own development and subtlety and surprise. This first song, each of them have a a kind of a focus. This first song appears to focus us on the task of God's servant, and we get that from all of these Things that the servant does, the the verbs, he brings forth justice, will not cry aloud, uh, will not make his voice heard in the street, will faithfully bring forth, forth justice, establish it in the earth, and then these purpose clauses, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners. 
The task of the servant is our focus. And for now, we won't concern ourselves exactly with the identity of the servant. God has sent his servant to secure his worship. That's what I take from that that setup. Behold the idols as nothing and delusions. Now behold my servant. In this line here in verse 8, I will give my glory to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Whatever this is about that the servant is doing by way of his mission and his task, he is bringing about the proper worship of our Lord. We'll take this morning in two steps. We'll spend most of our time in the first step. Let us look at what the servant does. Let us look at what the servant does. We'll answer a few questions here. Three What is his task? How will he do this? And what will this look like? Well, what is his task? I've put my spirit upon him, verse 1. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4, he will not stop till he has established justice in the earth. Nothing can stop him. Uh, in his pursuit of justice in the earth. Justice is a theme that dominates this poem. Repetition gives that, gives that to us. And when we hear the word justice, we might think in the first place in, in legal justice terms. It's a fine way to use the term. It's a little more broad here. Interpreting it in the context of the concern of the passage, we can say two things about justice. That this servant is bringing about justice, that is, that God's name would be worshipped rightly. The great injustice of the universe is that God is not praised as God, but he is substituted for idols. We're all cosmic thieves. His glory is his, and we were made for him, and we give our praise to others. It's a form of cosmic high treason. I believe that line belongs to R.C. Sproul. Cosmic thieves, we could say, taking glory from the God of the creation, the whole of the universe, and giving it to others. The first matter to be set right for a just world is that God's name would be worshipped rightly. And this means that false claims about God would be silenced. Chapter 41, verse 1. Listen to me. In silence, O coastlands, let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. And he brings judgment on their idols. And verse 21 of chapter 41. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Of course, the idols can't speak the future. Tell us the former things, what they are and what what we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, uh, that we may know that you are gods, do harm or do good, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. 
And there it is in verse 29. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. And then here we are into chapter 42. Behold, my servant, I set my spirit on him. He'll bring forth justice in the nations. You can see that primary concern in context is the concern for the proper worship of the name of God. That God's name would be worshipped rightly. But related to that, the bringing of justice into the world means that God's world is set aright. That the curse is reversed. It seems that every time humans set out to utterly fix the world, they always make it worse. They break it worse. We are much better off understanding the constraints of human nature simply to try to make it better with human systems and governance and education and whatnot. But there is no making a perfect world, as we've said. There's no attempting to make a perfect world without coercion and force and human judgment, but all humans are sinful. And as long as we're measuring justice on human terms only, with humans as a point of reference, we will only always commit more injustice. We must acknowledge a capital J judge, the God of heaven who is the God of justice. Justice must be defined Christian with reference to God, or it is not justice. We can sense our need for it, but we cannot know it apart from the knowledge of God. And of course, these are related, that God's name would be worshipped rightly and that God's world would be set, set aright. Because what's wrong with the world is that the world is wrong about God and we are, apart from God's grace, wrong with God. That's what's wrong with the world. But God is a good answer to the world if he would break in. And his servant is his answer to the world's problems. There is an answer, and God is kind to bring that answer. And of course, he has given it to us in Jesus. But we suspend that for a moment as we explore the nature of this justice and and even who it's for. In the first place, we said that it is God's justice, and that is true, or it's not justice. It's, It's inclusive. He will bring forth justice to the nations A reminder that when God came to Abraham and said, I will bless you, and through his offspring bless all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth, make him a great nation. And we see here that great expectation that God's purposes through the people of Israel receiving this book are purposes for all of humanity, all of the nations. It's inclusive in that sense. It flows to all peoples. It's also expansive. Look at verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. The whole earth. It gets to every place in the end. Flows to all nations and fills the earth. It's also exclusive. Till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. The coastlands, that is the very outermost parts of the earth, the the hardest and farthest places to get to. We can fly there and take big boats now, but, but imagine a world in which 
Getting there is much harder. You get it. Coastlands, the faraway places, they wait for his law, which is to say there is no other revelation of God and salvation that is to come except that which comes from God. And there's no other revelation of an answer to the problem of sin and guilt and death except one that would come from God to people. The coastlands wait. They don't even know what for. But every human person and every people and every nation and every false religion is waiting for the one answer to our very great problem of alienation from our God. And he will not grow faint or be discouraged. No, nothing will stop him till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. His justice is his justice and it flows to all nations and it fills the earth and it fulfills the deepest desires of the human person. And this justice is also certain. I will, I will, I will. Through his servant, the servant will. He will, he will. This passage, with all of the uncertainty as to the how to come at this point, is our God's pledge that yes, he will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It's certain. God sent his servant to secure his worship, and God's worship will set the world aright. That is his task. Now, how will he do this? And by how, I mean in what manner will he, he do this? Will he do this like Cyrus God's instrument of bringing the people back from Babylon, they were exiled from their land, would be exiled from their land because of their sin and idolatry. It's God's land. He's given it to them for his worship. If they refuse to worship him, they'll be exiled as promised. But he'll use Cyrus, a foreign ruler, to bring them back, for he is sovereign and providential over the movement of nations and kings, a comforting thought in 2024 in a year. Like Cyrus, though, loud and thunderous and shouting and stomping and steamrolling. That is, after all, how rulers in this world get their worship when they decide they need it. Absolute allegiance will be brought about by absolute force in this world. And it's loud when it happens. Well, how will this servant bring about this worldwide worship? Well, in the first place, he will serve without, without breaking us. He will serve with tenderness. Verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. Of what use is a bruised reed? Nothing and no one is useless to our God. Nothing and no one is useless 
to this servant. He's gentle and he is tender. Unlike human rulers. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Do you feel like a faintly burning wick? Too far gone. He will not quench a faintly burning wick. No one is too far gone. He will bring about this worldwide worship without breaking us. He comes to get it from us. And he will bring about this worship without breaking down. He will do so with tenderness and with great strength. He is tender and he is strong. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. He has no physical limitations standing in his way of this mission. This servant has no emotional limits. He can and will put up with a lot. And he will not give up until he has established his father's worship in this world to the ends of the earth. That is certain. He is able and he is perfectly willing. He will not be hard on us. This will not be hard for him. This is a good word for all of us. That's a good word for your pastors here. Oh, the advice is given to pastors as well, taken and always needed to be careful with our hearts that we might ever have a tender heart toward you and thick skin too because we need that for this work. But it can happen that in the course of developing thick skin so that we're not easily beat down and discouraged that we could become calloused. Uh, it can become this way with our children in the home, uh, with one another. You know what I mean. I'm just speaking personally as a pastor. Uh, a tender heart, so important, but not a pushover, not weak, not undiscerning. We have to deal with sin. We have to wrestle you out of your sin sometimes. It is a battle, is a good word for it. Uh, but tenderness is needed. Thick skin is needed. Oh, this servant is tender. And this servant is tough. This servant is tender for you and towards you. And he is also tough for you. And when necessary, for your sake, he is tough towards you. He is both perfectly and in perfect measure and in perfect expression. A bruised reed he will not break. Matthew says this of Jesus. To jump ahead in our story, you don't need to turn there. 
But in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make it known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, and he quotes it. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name all the Gentiles will hope. The Lord Jesus is gentle with us. He was quiet about his saving work. He's tough and he's tender. His hands are strong and his heart is soft toward us. God sent his servant to secure his worship. And he does so as only he can and as only he would. A third question now. What will this look like? So what will this look like? We considered the task. We considered the manner in which he'll go about it. Now, what will this look like when it happens? Well, it looks like the sight receiving their blind and, and the bound receiving freedom. Uh, to open the eyes of the blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness, that's what it looks like. It looks like leaping out of prison, a prison door being thrown open and light coming in. And the blind who can't see physically are trapped away in a dungeon given light to see. A whole new day, a whole new life, a whole new creation born in the person on whom the Lord shines his light. But let me put it another way to take account for all that's happening here. Yes, it's like, it's like the blind receiving sight and it's like a prisoner receiving freedom or it's like creation but better. It's like the exodus but, but better. Follow me here. It's like creation but better. Verse five, the Lord who created the heavens and the earth and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. God breathed life into Adam. He, he created and formed the earth and he created and formed humanity and he breathed his life into us so that we bear his image and we're animated with his very life. The creation story is called to mind right there. And what does God do in creation? But he speaks light into the darkness. And here the servant is sent as a light for the nations to give eyes to those who are blind. Our God is bringing about a whole new creation. Flip forward to excuse me, Isaiah 65 verse 17.
For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. He creates a whole new heavens and a new earth. And did you know that if you are in Christ Jesus, you are a new creation? That this work has dawned in your very life? And he's not done with you. He will bring this about to its completion with a whole new heavens and a whole new earth. And you know the Lord isn't done with you because you have to look in the mirror in the morning. And, and uh, that's not a reference to your physical appearance, but I suppose we will all look better in the new creation. But you know your own heart and you know your sins. God is going to complete what he began in you. But be encouraged that there are signs of life in you if you're in Christ. Take all kinds of encouragement from those signs of life. Uh, Any obedience from faith is an encouragement that God has saved you and put his spirit within you. And he will finish what he has started. Uh, Back to our passage now. He's bringing about a new creation. And he's bringing about a new exodus. That passage there in verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. That language is the language used in the course of the Exodus that God will rescue his people by his mighty hand. I have in my footnote for my manuscript about 20 separate verses in which God's hand or his mighty hand is used with reference to the Exodus. I am the Lord, and by the way, should have said this, verses 5 through 9 This is the Lord speaking to his servant. Verses 1 through 4 is the Lord speaking of his servant. So now, verse 6, he's speaking to his servant. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. That's Exodus language. And this is encouragement and comfort for the generation that would have been exiled to Babylon This is the promise that he will do for them again what he did for them before. And just as they were captives in captivity in Egypt, albeit for different reasons, and God dramatically and miraculously and lovingly rescued them, so he will dramatically and lovingly rescue them again. And he will do so by his mighty hand. He will take them by the hand. Cyrus would set them free. And it would be God's doing that they would be set free. The beginning of chapter 45, you don't need to turn there. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, a pagan king. The point is, he's using Cyrus, who's Right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of of kings. I will go before you and level 
the exalted places. He would use Cyrus, a king in that age, to free his people from Babylonian captivity. But he would do more than that. Verse 9 here, Behold, the former things have come to pass, the new things I now declare. This is a bit of a, a program for the next run of chapters ahead. You'll notice that we're preaching from chapter 42 this Sunday, and next week we'll have the second servant song all the way from chapter 49, and then there's one in chapter 50 and then one in 53. What's up with all this space between our song in 42 and the next song in 49? Well, there is development in these chapters that establish two expectations and two needs. Israel needed rescue from captivity. And Cyrus would be the agent of that rescue. However, they needed more than that. Lest we go over this over and over again and keep returning to these former things and former ways and former ways of dealing with it, like the Exodus and like this second Exodus from Babylon, which don't actually fix the problem in the human heart. And so in these intervening chapters is established the expectation not only that God will meet their need for physical rescue and captivity, but God will meet their need for forgiveness and inward transformation. And if Cyrus is the agent who will bring them back physically from captivity to the land, then the servant is the agent who will bring about transformation and the forgiveness of sins. God is serious about his worship, and he is no less serious about our happiness. These are immediately related. Don't you see this in the prisoner who leaps from the dungeon and the blind who gains sight? And you think, oh, well, of course, the blind would love to see and the prisoner would love to be free. But don't you understand that he's interpreting us in our sin? He's teaching us about our great need for him. The dungeon of our captivity to our sin and our idolatry and the, the blindness of our, our worship of idols that are nothing and are delusions. Oh, it's plain as day from heaven's vantage point, our problem, but not so much, is it? on the ground of our lives when we're in secret and we are tempted in the thoughts of our mind where no one can get and we are tempted to say this, to imagine that. Oh, and even in Christ, we still wrestle with and deal with the old man, as the Apostle Paul calls it, and temptations to sin which begin in our own hearts and entice us and lure away and can lead us even to death. Oh, it's like being blind. It's like, it's like being imprisoned. And you see, what God's doing here in bringing justice to the nations, that is bringing his true worship to the ends of the earth, is he is rehumanizing humanity. There is nothing more degrading than a false god. There is nothing more dehumanizing than sin. It is dehumanizing, even as it is de-godding. 
we de-God God and we presumably remove him from the throne and so ignore that he's king over us and that's always really, really bad for us. And we even may find tricky ways of feeling good about ourselves and getting along well down here but with the looming shadow of guilt and the coming horizon of death, we have no way out of both of those. And it is a hopeless, miserable life apart from the grace of God. And loving our sin, we find ourselves sick from head to toe. He says the whole man is sick in that first chapter. The whole head is sick, to quote him exactly. Now, what God is doing here and giving sight to the blind and setting prisoners free is he is rehumanizing us, renovating us, renewing us, redeeming us. There is the hope of forgiveness and there is the hope of total transformation. In chapter 44, turn there with me. I want to show you that in these intervening chapters, we have not only the promise of of a return from exile. We looked at that in chapter 45, verse 1. He's speaking to Cyrus, and there's development on that theme elsewhere in these chapters. But chapter 44, verse 21, shows us the greater need of every person from the Lord Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Let's turn back to our passage now. We've said before that the prophet will plant seeds and then let them grow and develop. And we see even here, as in the first chapter, there was that promise that our sins, though they're like scarlet, will be white as snow. So he returns to that matter of forgiveness and our greater, deeper need. Now, what will it look like for God to do this work? Will it look like the sight, the blind getting sight in the the bound being freed or, or like creation but better for God will shine the light into our hearts and make us new creations. It's like the exodus but better for, for it's not as people being brought out of physical captivity back to their land but people being freed from the captivity in their own hearts to that Babylon, that Egypt in their own heart. We need release and we need full redemption. God sent his servant to secure his worship. And God's worship is always good for us. We've taken a look so far at what the servant does. What the servant does. The servant's task. Now let's look at him again. Let's do a double take. Uh, We're right to see Jesus on the page here, or maybe I prefer to say to see Jesus from the page here. In Matthew chapter 12, as we saw, Matthew will pick this very passage up 
and say that it's fulfilled in Jesus who was gentle and who healed and showed compassion and did not break a bruised reed. When the Father speaks from heaven at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, in whom my soul delights. In other words, Jesus is the light of the world. He is light. And if we walk with him, we walk in the light. Isaiah's light theme is background for that. We are starting to realize where the New Testament authors got all their material about Jesus. They got it from the Old Testament, of course, and they got a lot of it from Isaiah, more than you would probably probably guess. So we're right to see Jesus there taking the lead of the apostles, but but were the apostles right to see Jesus there? You're going to have to follow me here. What was Isaiah talking about in this passage? Turn with me over to chapter 42, verse 18. We're going to rummage around the context just a touch. Remember, this is the same chapter, only some 10 verses later. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Now you're starting to think, oh, these are the ones that the servant frees. All right. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one? Or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted and they are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons and they have become plunder with no one to rescue, spoil with no one to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this will attend and listen for the time to come. And it goes on and on. They would not obey the Lord's law or walk in it. Well, this doesn't sound like Jesus, uh, blind, can't see, and deaf, spiritually blind, unlistening, unwilling to obey the Lord. But we see here that this servant is talking about the nation of Israel, the people of God, and the old covenant, divided kingdoms, of course. But he's talking about those old covenant people. Now he calls Isaiah a servant in this book and Eliakim is called a servant and David is called a servant, but this is pretty clearly the people. Look at chapter 41 just before our our passage this morning. In verse 8, Behold you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen. There it is, my servant whom I've chosen. That's the same language for our passage In chapter 42, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners saying, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. He's talking about the physical descendants of Israel, that nation formed from the 12 tribes. Now back to our passage. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. A light for the nations. We realize now that he's talking about 
He's talking about the nation of Israel. Let me make a little case for it because there's a way to read this and it's not beyond a good argument, let me offer. I had to settle on this myself to see that he's shifting from from the servant Israel now to the future Messiah, his servant. Um, A good case would be that Matthew quotes this and says that Jesus fulfills it. Um, or, Or make you a covenant for the people. It's like the Lord is talking to the Messiah, a covenant for the people. That could be the new covenant, I suppose, for his people. But I think it's better to see it, even though it's difficult, as the nation still in this, this passage, uh, that literary context. Uh, he's speaking to the blind servant later in their failure, but right before he's speaking to his chosen servant, the nation. Clearly, he's talking on both sides about, about the nation the imagery of leading them by the hand. By his mighty hand, he leads them by their hand into, sorry, out of bondage in Egypt and into the land. It's Exodus imagery. He does that for them. He will do that for them. And if it's not Israel, then where is even Israel in chapter 42? Oh, we say he's a covenant for the nations, but right after that, he says, a light, for, a covenant for the people, and right after that, a parallelism, a light to the nations. These interpret one another. I think the nations are overwhelmingly in view in this passage. And where is Israel? But Israel is the servant. So what do we make of this? Well, let me help us out here. The coming weeks are going to help us in some deeper ways to understand the relationship of Israel and the old covenant, Jesus and the church. So we'll hold that work. But maybe a metaphor will help us for now of a job description and a performance review. What we have in chapter 42 verses 1 through 9 is the job description for the nation, the ideal Israel, God's purpose for her, and verses later, a performance review. The heartbreaking truth that she is not who she is all to be. If she's in prison, captive, in a foreign land, then how can she be one to set prisoners free? If she's blind, how can she give sight to the blind? If she doesn't obey God's law, how can she bring God's law to the coastlands? If she worships the idols of Babylon, how can she be the one to bring God's worship throughout all the earth? And so we have a problem. And so we're letting Isaiah present to us, he's unfolding for us a theme and a story of a servant that has tension and is confusing at times. And in the course of this preaching, my purpose is to let that tension sit there. Now, I did that because we thought it was Jesus, and it is, I'll explain. But as we suspend who we think it is, and we read the page, and we realize there's a lot going on here. So let us let Isaiah unfold his story of the servant on his own terms. What we know from from Isaiah 42 here is that God will certainly get his worship throughout all the earth. He will do it through his servant, a light for the nations. And in the course of that, we'll make many leap from prisons with joy and see for the first time with light in their hearts that he miraculously grants. And then, of course, it's the nation, and so we're confused or heartbroken or put in a place of tension to wonder how ever God will do this. And a little giveaway here. 
Another metaphor, I find it a little easier. Time travel, easier as in I grew up with it in the movies. Imagine if you could go back in time and redo your life. That terse word you said that turned that friendship, that dark season in your marriage that turned the marriage dark and you wish you could redo it and not say those things and not go there. Matthew presents the Lord Jesus as reenacting the life of Israel. And that is how Isaiah can say, this is the nation. And Matthew can say, this is fulfilled in Jesus. He took up the job description and he fulfilled it. Do you see? The Lord Jesus is a light to the nations. He is your light. The Lord Jesus is our freedom from captivity to sin and guilt and death and judgment and all the things. And we need more than freedom from our captivity to a hard physical life down here. We need deliverance from our sin. We need forgiveness and we need transformation. That's the message of Isaiah. And that's what Isaiah's servant, God's servant, will bring. Well, to wrap this up, we consider that the identity and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's servant, does not emerge from single Bible verses in our Old Testament or even chapters like Isaiah 53. But Isaiah 53 itself comes to us within the context of a story. The identity and the work of Jesus cannot be fully understood apart from this story, and that's why we're doing this work together. Creation stands behind this story, even in our verse. God's promise to Abraham stands behind the story. God's work with the nation of Israel stands behind this story. And God's promises through this King David stands behind this story, through whom it is promised God will bring his worship and justice to the ends of the earth. All those threads run through these nine verses. God sent his servant, the Lord Jesus, in order to secure his worship. And proof that he has done so is the sound of our voices singing on the Lord's day. Look at verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, and here we are on the other side of the earth singing to the Lord this Lord's day. Let me pray and then we'll sing. Oh, Father in heaven, we praise you for this beautiful stretch of truth that by it we know that you are gentle with us and yet while you are gentle you are not soft like some of us can be on sin no you are strong to secure for yourself among us your worship 
You've shown your light in our hearts in the face of Jesus Christ, who dealt gently with us and who is strong to obey all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. Was strong, for you raised him from the dead, and he has put the serpent underneath his feet. Oh, Father, help us to sing and to live into this glorious truth and to take it with us as we go. In Christ's name, amen.